A year after Roe v. Wade was passed, another significant event happened in the U.S. government. Almost 50 years ago, to avoid impeachment, Richard Nixon resigned as President of the United States. At that same time, the former legal counsel to Richard Nixon had already gone to prison for his participation in the Watergate scandal. But that's what the Lord used to bring Chuck Colson to faith in Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Charles Morris, and this is The Great Stories Podcast. Today I'm returning to a classic conversation I had with the late Chuck Colson. Now as a refresher, it was the summer of 1974. Chuck had worked in the White House but went to prison because of Watergate. And then he was in jail watching his former boss resign in the Rose Garden. Since all this took place almost 50 years ago, that means there are many people who have never heard Chuck Colson's life story and how he became the founder of Prison Fellowship. I'd like to change that today. In the summer of 1974, he was a former attorney to the President of the United States. He had worked in the White House, but went to prison because of Watergate. And then he was in jail, watching his former boss resign in the Rose Garden. Now, that was 30 years ago, so that means there are many people who have never heard the story of Chuck Colson. I'm Charles Morris, and with me is the founder of Prison Fellowship and the speaker on the daily radio program Breakpoint. Chuck, I want to welcome you to Haven today. Well, thank you, Charles. I'm glad to be with you. I shudder when I think it's 30 years. People come up and ask me for autographs now because <laughs> I ask them which book they're going to put in. They say, well, oh, you're, you're in my son's history book. That's right. Yes, <laughs> 30 that's years right. put you in history. Well, you know, just the other day I picked up a copy. My original copy of Born Again was worn out, frankly. So I actually got a brand new copy and I started looking at it and I said to myself, you know, this story is worth telling again. And uh, I know there are people who haven't heard it. So let's turn the clock back a little bit. And uh, you were an executive to the late President Richard Nixon. Uh, yeah, I was a special counsel. Uh, my office was next to his in the White House. And uh, I guess I was one of the four or five people walking out of his office every day of the week uh, on the great affairs of state and uh, politics. Uh, of course, all of that came tumbling down, as uh, most of our listeners will remember or have read about, in what became the greatest scandal in American political history, certainly in the 20th century, that was Watergate, where there was an attempt made to cover up a very stupid thing, a break-in at the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. And uh, went on for two years. The country was just convulsed yes. with uh, hearings in the Congress, the urban hearings and grand juries, and eventually 26 of Mr. Nixon's assistants went to prison. Well, I was one of them. When you look at it, because here we're in the middle of a presidential race right now, it is very, very heated on both sides. I don't think in my following politics I've ever seen a presidential race being debated this severely, this tightly. To work in that White House, that's a pretty rarefied atmosphere by man's standards, isn't it? Oh, it's a tough place to work. Uh, and even before Watergate, I found I was working six days a week, sometimes seven. You're on the phone all the time. President Nixon had a... On, fortunate habit of waking up in the middle of the night with great ideas and he'd call me. <laughs> so that meant I woke up in the middle of the night with his great ideas. That's right. But yes. the strain of that is terrific. I would come home some nights uh, physically exhausted and some nights uh, nauseated at the prospect of wow. nuclear war and some of the decisions you have to make. So I go back to the White House now, I see the president, I see a lot of his stuff and I... You don't want to be there. <laughs> no, but I have a great deal of sympathy for him. And watching the president in the debate, uh, the first debate, I 
I knew he had to pull some of his punches because he can't talk about a lot of the things that are going on in foreign policy. Well, it's the most so, powerful position in the world by yeah, man's sure standards, is. isn't it? Well, it is. And it's, it's a scary job because you, your decisions make war of peace, life and death. Wow. Well, let's go back to your story then. So uh, Watergate had broken. You were caught up in it. Uh, what happened to you before Nixon fell? Well, I left the White House. I, I didn't plan to stay for the second term. And after the election was over, I told the president I was leaving and did. Started to pack up my office, which looked out over the south lawn of the White House, the beautifully manicured lawns. And I remember one day sitting there thinking my grandfather would be so proud of me. He was a mm. Swedish immigrant to America if he realized his grandson was sitting next to the president of the White House. And I felt this strange emptiness. Instead of feeling jubilant over winning the election, I felt just dead. Mm. And I thought, maybe I'm just tired. It's been a tough grind for three and a half years in the White House. Instead, that continued for months. And then I met a man who, I went back to practice law once again, and met a man who'd been a client before I went in the government. I hadn't seen him in four years, and he was totally different. And I went to his office one day, <laughs> feeling kind of washed out myself, and I said, Tom, you've changed. What's happened to you? Wow. He said, oh, yes, I've accepted Jesus Christ and committed my life to him. Now, I, this must have uh, hit you in, in not the way you wanted to be hit. I almost fell off the chair. I mean, I grew up in New England, which is most people would correctly regard it as a spiritual backwaters mm -hmm. and uh, Unitarian wasteland. And I'd never heard the gospel. I'd been to church a few times, but I didn't know what he was talking about. It so shocked me that I changed the subject. Uh, but over those next months, I... I watched him. He was different, and those words haunted me. And one night in the summer of 1973, dark days of Watergate, I went to his home and spent an hour with him, or an hour and a half, or two hours. He witnessed to me, told me what had happened to him, how he'd come to Christ to the Billy Graham crusade, and then he read to me from a wonderful little book, which I always recommend, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Sure. Read a chapter on pride, and it was like a torpedo hitting me. Because it applied to you. Uh, because it applied to me. My whole life flashed before my eyes. You know, people have near-death experiences. I, I guess I didn't have a near-death experience, the death of the old man. Hmm. And I found myself that night when I left his home, got in the automobile to drive away, but I couldn't drive very far. I was crying too hard. Wow. Pulled over to the side of the road, and I didn't know the sinner's prayer, and I didn't know the four spiritual laws. All I knew was I wanted to know God and cried out to him, take hmm. me the way I am. Hmm. And is that when you met the Lord, you think, that very Yes, night? it is. Well, I went off to the main coast with my wife. I took that book, Mere Christianity. I was dog-eared by the time I finished with it. Mm -hmm. and I mm -hmm. came to the conclusion that this was absolutely true, uh, this business about Christ. And I can remember praying there uh, very clearly uh, for Christ to come into my life. Wow. Let me just interject a, a little question here along the way, because I know everybody's so interested in politics with this presidential race. There are a lot of uh, heated state elections going on right now. Why is it so hard for someone in politics to follow Christ? Well, a lot of them do. I mean, I've known a That's lot of true. people in very political true. office who are very sincere Christians. Yes. Um, I look at Sam Brownback from Kansas, to me, is just a model of it. Uh, He's really serious about his faith, and it's a wonderful thing. And, and these guys, Bill Armstrong was mm -hmm. in the Senate for many years and mm -hmm. left. And, a lot of prayer meetings on Capitol Hill. Yeah. They're going at the White House, too. Sure. Yeah. Oh, and the, I've spoken at the White House uh, Bible study group twice, and they've been really impressed with a number of people. And I've had an opportunity to talk to the president about his faith. I think people get a jaundiced view of people in politics, and then scandals like Watergate set us all back, uh, which I was part of, of course. But... Uh, I think, by and large, a lot of very decent people trying to do the right thing for the country. 
mm-hmm. or in government. Mm-hmm. I guess the pull of power, though, the pull of being in a, a place where you're held up on a pedestal. You mentioned the pride issue that uh, the C.S. Lewis book uh, was used by God to convict you and lead you to faith in Christ. Pride can run rampant, can't it, in politics? Oh, well, it, it, it does. And the bad thing is when you stay at it too long. I mean, Bill Armstrong, I just mentioned a moment ago, senator from Colorado, he did two terms in the Senate. He could have been reelected a third time handily. And he just decided, no, I've done this enough. I'm going to go back to public life. I don't want to make this a career. The career politician has an investment he has to protect. And this does affect people after a while. But, mm-hmm. but I just think you have to look at politics like any other profession. There are going to be some very good, dedicated people in it, selfless people. There are going to be some people in it for the wrong reasons. But that's true of the law. That's true of medicine. It's true of mm. probably broadcasting. That's right. So, um, you know, you've you, you got to take a, an even-handed look at politics. Chuck, i got to tell you, I used to work for UPI and uh, was an editor. I was one of them. And uh, <laughs> it actually took me a couple of years to even buy that chosen book because as a secular journalist, I didn't believe you. I didn't believe your life could have changed. But well, don't, feel, <laughs> don't feel particularly special because... I wasn't alone, probably, I guess, was I? No, the vast majority of Americans felt the same way, and and uh, the, the feelings were all reciprocal. I didn't think I could trust anybody in the press either, so no. <laughs> we're on even footing. <laughs> right, that's right. There really is something that happens, though, about the new birth. And, 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 and you had to spend jail time. You had to go to prison because of what you had done. Not all of us, because of our sins, have had to go to an actual prison. But that's what it took, wasn't it, for God to reach into you and capture your heart. And the thing I wanted more than anything else was to get out of prison and get home with my family and take care of my uh, mother because my dad had died while I was in prison. I had a lot of problems. And I mm. I kept thinking, let me out of this place. And yet I now realize that every day I spent there was important in terms of my own credibility to be able to go back in the prisons. We're now in prisons in 109 countries around the world and uh, virtually every prison in America. Angel Tree, which brings gifts to 600,000 yes. kids a year, is just yes. marvelous. That wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't done time in prison. So what I thought was the biggest defeat and biggest catastrophe in my life has turned out to be the greatest blessing, which is the paradox of the cross, isn't it? Yes, it really is. That's what the gospel does. You know, most people who are not in jail don't really realize the the power of evangelism at work in our prisons. I, I know you get a lot of letters. We get a lot of messages and letters from prisoners here at Haven today. God is on the move in prisons, isn't he? Samuel Johnson once said, the hangman's noose marvelously concentrates the mind. <laughs> yes. People think about life, and it's the one place in the whole world where I never have to worry about preaching about sin, because uh, the people inside understand that. They do. We run four prisons in America, and I can tell you it's been a, a glorious exercise to see how powerfully these people are converted in these prisons, and then how the culture of the prison changes. We've got one prison in Texas, started when Governor Bush was governor. Uh, which we've been running now since 1997, seven years. We have a recidivism rate of 8%, right. attested by the University of Pennsylvania in a study. Compared to a national average of recidivism of what, would you 70. say? 70. 70%. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's the power of the gospel. That's Jesus sure. at work, isn't it? Yeah, but that's what makes prison such a, a wonderful place to do ministry in because people don't expect much. And when they can see a convict who's an outcast of society and who's a really messed up badly, when they can see him transformed and really being a disciple of Christ, they figure there's got to be hope for everybody. Mm, Wow. Praise God that that can happen. Chuck, we have a lot of prisoners that listen to this program, but we've got a lot of other people that don't realize that they're living behind bars right now, even though they may not be in prison. 
Would you mind just closing our time together by just praying for prisoners, but also people who may be in prison, but they don't even realize they're in prison? Well, there are two million people in prison in America today, jails and prisons. There are another six million who are on parole or probation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got hundreds of thousands of juveniles being swept off the streets in drugs and alcohol. You've got all kinds of people in mainstream America who are prisoners of one kind of sin or another. Yes. And the gospel comes for us all, so yeah, I'd be happy to do oh, that. Oh, please job. lead us in prayer then. Father, we thank you for the listeners today across the country. Um, and we pray, Father, as you convict them of their sin, that they would turn away and uh, repent and bring themselves to you. Father, we all come to the foot of the cross bringing nothing but our own unclean hands. And we ask you to cleanse us and to give us that new life that I experienced 31 years ago and, and every day since has been so rich to be able to know you and to have my life right with God. So Father, we pray for those who are listening and we pray that they'll come to understand uh, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that we can come to him with a simple prayer, asking him to forgive us and start fresh and start new. So help people who are listening, Father, get that fresh start, get a new start in life, be born again. Uh, We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord, who went to the cross in our place. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of Great Stories with Charles Morris. I'm also grateful for the late Chuck Colson, who shared his fascinating life story with me. If you want to hear more conversations like this, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please help us get the word out by leaving a five-star review. You can also go to haventoday.org to sign up for our weekly email and discover additional episodes posted on the blog. And as always, thank you for joining me once again on Great Stories with Charles Morris. Charles Morris.